These are readings for paleobiology on functional morphology. First one is a chapter from a Footmiller textbook, 2009, chapter 5, Evolutionary Morphology. The subject of biological diversity, see section 8.1, is often conveyed with the question, why are there so many kinds of organisms? We may just as well turn this question around, however, and ask why there are so few kinds. In discussing the nature of populations and species in Chapter 3, we saw that form is not randomly or uniformly distributed, but rather that organisms form more or less discrete units. Form is also non-randomly distributed at higher taxonomic levels. The species that have lived on Earth represent a very small subset of all imaginable forms. In other words, most forms that are conceivable have not yet, in fact, evolved, and perhaps never will. I added that last part because I misspoke the first part. That sentence actually reads, in other words, most forms that are conceivable have not in fact evolved. By contrast, some aspects of form have evolved numerous times uh, convergently. See section 4.2. Given that life has been evolving on Earth for well over 3 billion years, why is the spectrum of biological form so limited? Broadly speaking, evolutionary morphology is concerned with understanding the diversity and non-randomness of form. This is obviously an important subject. We will emphasize two main aspects of this area of research. Functional morphology, which interprets the function of organisms in relation to their form, theoretical morphology, uh, and theoretical morphology, which compares the spectrum of conceivable forms to those that have actually evolved. 5.1. Adaptation and other underlying assumptions. We usually start with the working assumption that the distribution of form can largely be explained by adaptation. The distinction can be made between adaptation and, uh, as a state, the fit between an organism's phenotype and its environment and way of life, and adaptation as a process, the evolutionary mechanisms and pathways that produce adaptive traits in a lineage. This distinction is most relevant when there have been evolutionary shifts, shifts in function. Natural selection may have produced a structure to perform a particular function in a particular environment, and the structure may have been... Uh, subsequently co-opted and modified over evolutionary time to suit a new functional need. A persuasive example of such a functional shift is found in the wings of insects. Insect wings must exceed a critical size to generate flight. Because it is practically impossible that fully developed wings were produced by genetic mutation in a single step, the earliest stages in the evolution of the wing must have been small organs that could not have been used for flight. In other words, it seems unlikely that the wing initially evolved by natural selection for the function of flight. This does not mean that a small wing-like structure would have been useless, however. Functional modeling of the kind we discussed later in this chapter has shown that the small wing-like appendages can be useful in regulating body temperature by absorbing solar radiation. In a series of experiments carried out by biologists J. Kingsolver and M. Cool, 1985, wings attached to model insects became more effective at thermoregulation as they were made larger, but only up to a certain size. Above that size, the wings began to generate appreciable lift and to convert other aerodynamic benefits to the models. This suggests that natural selection for the function of thermoregulation could have produced a wing sufficiently large that selection for the new function of flight could have taken over. Figure 5.1 schematic diagram depicting principal factors that contribute to biologic form, using the model of a ternary diagram familiar to geologists. Every form represents an interplay between immediate adaptation, functional factor, phylogenetic history, and constraints imposed by physical law and the properties of materials, structural factor. 
In interpreting form, it is useful to consider a framework that distinguishes the two major determinants of form in addition to adaptation, figure 5.1. This framework, which has been developed extensively by the paleontologist Adolf Silacher uh, and his colleagues, is commonly referred to as constructional morphology. The historical or phylogenetic factor reflects those aspects of form that tend to be fixed within a biological group because of their shared ancestry. For example, the interpreting, of, uh, in interpreting the form of a specialized bivalve, such as a scallop, we do not ask why it has two valves. This is a fundamental part of the bivalve body plan, one that did not vary in the history of the scallop lineage. Whether we interpret an aspect of form to reflect the phylogenetic inheritance depends on the scale of the analysis. In studying the origin of bivalve mollusks, we might well consider the adaptive value of having two valves. The functional factor might then become quite prominent. The structural factor may be the least familiar, although it was discussed at great length by R.C. Thompson in his book On Growth and Form, 1942, see section 2.3. This factor pertains to consequences of physical law and the properties of materials, rather than direct selection. For example, a number of natural selectors, uh, structures such as honeycombs, coral colonies, arthropod eyes, and many echinoderm skeletons show a regular arrangement of hexagonal units. In the case of the honeycomb, individual bees are not genetically programmed to produce hexagonal cells in the beehive. An isolated bee would produce a circular cell. It'll, it is the simultaneous uh, action of many individual bees, each one pushing outward as it constructs a single cell that results in the geometrically close-packed structure. Similarly, comparison between the roughly circular perimeters of, a solitary, of solitary corals and the hexagonal perimeters of coralites of many colonial corals suggest a consequence of close packing. Natural selection can act only upon the variation present in populations, see section 3.1. If there is no genetic trait uh, variation for a trait, that trait cannot evolve, even if some modification would be advantageous to the organism. Thus, the absence of certain forms in the history of life need not imply that they would have been maladaptive. Likewise, some genetic variants may, have been, may be generated by spontaneous mutation more often than others. The term developmental constraint is sometimes used to describe the non-randomness of variation that results from the interaction between the genome and developmental process. We saw in Chapter 4, for example, that the repeated evolution of bissel attachment in adult bivalve mollusks was probably facilitated by the presence of the byssus in the juvenile stage, a feature that could be retained by a simple modification of developmental timing. Thus, the variation on which selection can act is not strictly random. This reflects a combination of the historical and structural factors of Figure 5.1. 5.2, Functional Morphology. The existence of a correlation between form and function is one of the oldest observations in biology. In some cases, the reason for the correlation may, at least, may be at least partly phylogenetic. For example, living mammals that chew their cud have an even number of toes, but the number of toes clearly represents deep phylogenetic inheritance rather than an adaptation for digestion. In other cases, however, the form-function correlation clearly has an adaptive basis. Quadrupeds that run fast also have long limbs, for instance, and this can be understood from the mechanics of muscles and levers. The causal understanding of form-function correlation lies at the heart of functional morphology. Given the assumption that adaptation is one of the many determinants of form, it is essential to identify those aspects of form that were the targets of selection in specific cases. 
Here, we outline the basic ways in which function is inferred for extinct organisms, and we follow these with examples that illustrate the main approaches. Throughout any functional analysis, it is essential to keep in mind that a structure may be involved in multiple functions. If these functions make conflicting demands on the structure, then it, not every function can be optimally performed. The result is a compromise or trade-off. Approaches to functional morphological analysis. Inference from homology. The simplest way to infer function in extinct organisms is to consider homologous structures in living relatives. For example, we infer that most extinct birds use their wings to fly unless the details of form suggest otherwise. Homology, as a key to function, is limited because it is of no help in the many fossil species that have no close living relatives. It is also an inexact guide to function. Archaeopteryx and other primitive birds may have used their wings for flight. This does not imply that the style of flight was like any group of extant birds, however, for there has been extensive modification of the skeletal, muscular, and respiratory systems since the initial evolution of birds. Despite such limitations, evidence from the homology remains an important component of many studies of functional morphology. Inference from analogy. The, structure, or the function of skeletal structures may also be inferred from their close physical resemblance to convergent structures in distantly related species. This is what we do, for example, when we interpret the wings of a pterosaur as an apparatus for flight or gliding, uh, and when we interpret the streamlined form of ichthyosaurs as an adaptation for swimming. Because analogies can be inexact, analogous structures require thorough analysis before the precise details of their function can be understood. Biomechanical analysis. Nearly all studies of functional morphology today involve biomechanical analysis. The function of problematic structures is deduced in light of the physical properties of the biologic materials, mechanics of beams, levers, joints, and other structures, and aero and hydrodynamics. Biomechanical analysis can be broadly categorized into two general approaches, the paradigm approach and the experimental approach, though they are not completely distinct. The concept of the paradigm in functional studies was introduced to paleontology in the 1960s by M.J.S. Rudwick, who was especially concerned with inferring the function when homology and analogy could not be easily recognized. He defined the paradigm as, quote, the structure that can fulfill the function with maximal efficiency under the limitations imposed by nature of the materials, unquote. The paradigm approach typically involves three steps. One or more potential functions are postulated for the problematic structure. Uh, that's number one. Two, for each potential function, engineering principles are used to design the hypothetical structure optimally suited for carrying out that function. This structure is referred to as a paradigm. Because of trade-offs and limitations in the inherited body plan and materials, the optimal structures are not the best conceivable designs, but the best ones possible in light of these constraints. Three, the resemblance between the actual structure and the set of paradigms is assessed, and the paradigm that most closely resembles the actual structure is identified. The function, of corresponding, the function corresponding to the closest per paradigm is inferred to be the one that the actual structure most likely performed. Assessing resemblance between a paradigm and an actual structure involves some degree of subjectivity. For example, how closely must an elevated region on a bryozoan colony resemble a chimney for us to be confident that it indeed functioned like a chimney to facilitate fluid flow away from the colony surface? This uncertainty has contributed to a general preference for the experimental approach, which allows a functional performance to be measured and verified. 
the experimental approach in biomechanics also involves three steps. One, as with the paradigm approach, several potential functions are postulated for an unknown structure. A model of the organism or structure is made. That's number two. This model can be physical or numerical, and it can be highly simplified or a nearly exact replica. Three, the capacity of the structure to perform the function is assessed experimentally. Experimentation often involves manipulations such as removing a structure of interest from the mo uh, model organism to determine whether its presence makes an appreciable difference to play to mechanical properties and function. For a simple physical or numerical model, there may be exact equations to determine its preference. The paradigm approach and the experimental approach to biomechanical analysis share the advantage that they rely on universal physical laws and properties of materials. Both have the disadvantage of being limited by the range of postulated functions, and therefore by the imagination of the investigator. It is not always possible that a structure may be best suited for a function that has not even be, uh, been considered. Biomechanical analysis can only tell us whether an organism was capable of functioning in a specified way, not that it actually did so. Biomechanics has nonetheless been of great use in understanding the relationship between form and function in living as well as fossil organisms. Examples of biomechanical analysis of extinct organisms. Vision in trilobites. The eyes of trilobites are similar in many ways to those of living arthropods. Therefore, we can, much can be learned about the functional morphology of the trilobite eye by analogy with living forms. But there are important structural differences that suggest that the optical systems used by trilobites were significantly different. Much of our understanding of trilobite vision derives from an unusual collaboration between paleontologist Yuan Clarkson and a physicist, Ricardo uh, Levi-Setti. When the two met at a conference in Oslo in 1973, both had for several years been active students of trilobite morphology. Clarkson had done considerable work on trilobite vision, and Levi-Setti had a physicist's knowledge and understanding of optical systems. Trilobites possessed a compound eye, consisting of numerous lenses arranged in rows, figure 5.2. The lenses were usually deployed in a geometrically closely packed configuration. The lenses themselves were made of calcium carbonate in the form of the mineral calcite and are sometimes preserved. It has been possible experimentally to produce focused images through individual lenses. It is not known whether the animals could perceive a clear image because this depends on the nervous system and unpreserved details of the eyes, but they could at the very least recognize movements of an object and estimate its size. Figure 5.2, a trilobite with well-developed compound eyes, Erbenokyle from the Lower Devonian of Morocco. Lens morphology and the arrangement of lenses vary considerably from one group of trilobites to another. A particularly interesting lens shape is illustrated in figure 5.3. It is a doublet consisting of an upper unit that is convex on its upper surface but has a more complex shape on its lower surface. Two variants of the shape of the lower surface are shown at the center in the illustration. In both variants, the lower part of the doublet has an upper surface that fits the shape of the upper lens and a lower surface that is simply convex. The two lenses together make thus a biconvex compound lens. Upon examination of Clarkson's reconstruction of trilobite eyes, Levi-Setti noticed that the upper lens just described are the very close approximations of lenses in designs published by René Descartes and Christian Huygens in the 17th century. Descartes and Huygens' drawings are reproduced for comparison in figure 5.3, 
right, uh, left and right. The purpose of both designs was to produce what is known as a aplanatic lens, one that avoids certain kinds of distortion. The similarity between the shapes of upper trilobite lenses and the lenses designed by Descartes and Huygens is remarkable. Indeed, the lenses differ little, other than in the presence of that lower lens in the trilobite, an element that does not appear in the designs of either Descartes or Huygens. But this understanding... But this is understandable when it is noted that the aplanatic lens was designed to operate in air. Calculations have shown in the, that in the trilobite's aqueous environment, the lower lens would be necessary to compensate for the relatively high refractive index of seawater. Thus, the trilobite lens doublet appears to be an optimal modification of basic designs that became a part of human technology only recently as the 17th century. Similar correcting lenses have since been recognized in some living insects, ostracodes, and even scallops. Figure 5.3. Lens morphology of two trilobites, Dal Dalmanatina socialis, uh, center left, and Crozenaspis struvi, struv center right, compared with the original drawings for aplanatic lenses just published by Descartes, left, and Huygens, right. The trilobite lens is optimal in yet another way. Light was transmitted through the calcite lenses to photoreceptive cells within the eyes. The properties of calcite are such that light impinging on a crystal from virtually any angle is refracted in two directions, leading to a double image. However, if the crystal is oriented so the light is moving parallel to its principal optical axis, the C-axis, see figure 2.14, the light will travel through the crystal as if it were glass. And this is precisely the orientation observed in trilobite lenses. The individual eye cells are oriented with respect to the curved surface in such a way that the C-axes of the calcite lenses are normal to the sur eye surface. To summarize, it appears that from the work of Clarkson and Levy Setti, 1975, that trilobites evolved a remarkably sophisticated optical system. For an engineer to develop such a system would require considerable knowledge of optics and quite a bit of ingenuity. As an application of the paradigm approached to problems of functional morphology, the example provided by the trilobite lens is nearly unsurpassed. As with many classic cases that uh, classic case studies that illustrate a principle unusually clearly, the interpretation of trilobite lenses has been scrutinized and challenged. First, it has been suggested that the doublet structure of Figure 5.3 may be a preservational artifact. This uh, possibility has not been completely evaluated, however, and the general consensus at the moment is that the trilobites in question had genuinely, uh, genuine lens doublets. Second, and more interestingly, some calculations have shown that the Descartes lens, which involved some mathematical approximations in its design, may not actually be well-suited for minimizing optical distortion. Yet, some trilobite lenses have this shape. Why? Although we still do not know with certainty, some workers have suggested that the lens may have functioned as bifocals, allowing focused images of near and far objects through different parts of the lens. We cannot predict how these questions will ultimately be resolved, but we can be sure that the function of trilobite eyes, eyes will, be, will continue to be a fascinating area of research. Ventral wind plates in crinoids. Living stocked crinoids are erect suspension feeders. They use their arms to capture suspended organic particles, which are then passed along an ambulacrum, or food groove, that runs the length of the arms toward the mouth, located centrally on the ventral side of the calyx. Figure 4. Dang, I'm having a rough time. Figure 5.4. 
The feeding posture of living stocked crinoids is shown in figure 5.5. The arms are recurved into the current, which flows from left to right in the photograph. Figure 5.4. Ventral view of the living crinoid Neocrinus decorus, showing the central mouth, plated ambulacra, and bases of arms. Figure 5.5. Feeding posture of the living stocked crinoid Cenocrinus. The current shows uh, flows from left to right, and the mouth is downstream to the calyx. This crinoid is approximately one meter tall. The photo was taken at between 200 and 300 meters in depth off the coast of Jamaica. The current goes around the arms, through the openings between the arms, and the food particles are captured on the downstream side of the arms. By homology, most extinct stocked crinoids are thought to have functioned in the same way. Certain Carboniferous crinoids, most notably the genus Pterocrinus, are unusual in possessing large wing-like plates that protrude from the ventral surface of the calyx, figure 5.6. In an experimental study of Pterocrinus, Tomas uh, Baumiller and Roy Plotnik, 1989, uh, postulated two potential functions for the wing plates. First, they may have served as, quote, spitter, splitter plates, unquote. It is well known from hydrodynamics that the flow around a blunt body separates, producing a low-pressure region in the wake and an increasing drag on the body, figure 5.7a. Adding a long plate to the object in the downstream direction helps reduce drag by delaying the separation of flow, thus reducing the diameter of the wake, figure 5.7b. Drag reduction could be beneficial to the crinoid by enabling it to maintain the appropriate feeding posture and by reducing stress on the ligaments of the stalk. Second, the plates may have served as rudders, enabling the crinoid to maintain its feeding posture by reorienting passively when the current direction changed, much as the tail of a weather vane keeps it pointed into the wind. Uh, figure 5.6, Reconstruction of the Early Carboniferous Crinoid Pterocrinus depressus in Feeding Posture. Figure 5.7, Splitter Plate Effect, uh, with flow from left to right. To explore these two possibilities, Baumiller and Plotnik constructed an idealized physical crinoid feeding apparatus, a fine steel screen formed into a hemispherical bowl, figure 5.8. This model crinoid was attached to via rigid uh, rods to ball bearings so that the model could turn, and the apparatus was attached to a strain gauge so that the forces on the model could be measured. Experiments were conducted by placing the model in a flume, the hydrodynamic equivalent of a wind tunnel, and varying the speed of the current and its re direction relative to the models. Models with and without wing plates were tested. To ensure that results did not depend critically on the particular experimental conditions, the experimenters spanned a wide range in current speed, the angle between the current and the model, the coarseness of the wire mesh, and other aspects of the model, such as the distance between the ball bearing pivot and the calyx. Current speeds were also kept within a biologically realistic range. Figure 5.8, Experimental Design for Measuring Forces on Crinoid Models. The wire mesh hemisphere simulates the crinoid in feeding posture, and the diamond-shaped plate stimulates, sorry, simulates the wing plate. Ball bearings allow the model to swing passively, and the strain gauge measures the forces on the model. The current flows from left to right. To test the hypothesis that the wing plates in pterocrinus may have functioned as splitter plates, the drag force on the models with plates was compared with the force on models without plates. Models were oriented 
with the concave side of the wire mesh hemisphere pointing upstream, consistent with the feeding posture of living crinoids. The splitter plate hypothesis predicts that models with plates should experience lower drag forces. In fact, the drag forces on the two models were found to be indistinguishable, figure 5.9a. This suggests that wing plates were unlikely to have functioned to reduce drag. To test the rudder hypothesis, the models were turned away from the concave upstream posture by specified angles. If the wing plates functioned effectively as rudders, then the models with plates should experience greater rotational forces than the models without plates. And this is exactly what happened. Figure 5.9b, which suggests that the rudder hypothesis is plausible. Crinoids with wing plates could have used them to reorient themselves passively. In summary, a simplified but hydrodynamically relevant model of an erect crinoid shows that specialized structures, the wing plates, probably did not function to reduce drag, but may well have enabled crinoids to maintain the proper feeding posture without expending energy to turn into the current. This represents an exemplary case of the use of experimental manipulation of physical models combined with knowledge of living representatives to deduce the function of extinct organisms. The next example illustrates these same themes, but differs in using replicas of actual specimens. Figure 5.9. Results of experiments on crinoid models of figure 5.8. A. Drag force on the models versus current speed. There is essentially no difference in drag between models with and without wing plates. B. Rotational force on the model versus angle and the model and the current. Forces with positive sign are those that, are, that cause the wire mesh bowl to turn into the current. The models with plates were able to reorient passively into the current, whereas the models without plates are not. Spines in horseshoe crabs. Spines and other projections are common in a wide range of organisms. Their function is often regarded, quite reasonably, as protective. The adaptive value of the precise morphological details of spines, their size and shape, is usually less clear, however. Euproops, uh, that's a great name, Euproops, <laughs> a late Carboniferous arthropod related to living horseshoe crabs, possessed two pairs of spines on the anterior body region, or prosoma, figure 5.10. One intriguing property of these spines is that in juveniles, the lateral pair is longer than the medial pair. The medial spines grow faster, however, so in adults, they are longer than the lateral spines. The function of spines was explored experimental by Daniel Fisher, 1977, who considered both the general role of spines and the reason for their relative sizes. Figure 5.10. Late Carboniferous Horseshoe Crab, uh, Euproops Danae. Danae? Uh, A. Reconstruction. B. Fabricated Models. Models are in an enrolled posture, with posterior tucked up under the anterior and the telson projecting forward. The A and B models are juveniles and adults. Uh, A4 and B2 are actual forms. The others have had spines artificially lengthened or shortened. Man, those look wild. Living horseshoe crabs are known to burrow for protection. Because previous functional studies had shown that Euproops was probably a capable swimmer, Fisher reasoned that individuals were likely to encounter predators well above the substrate, where burrowing would not be an option. Numerous arthropods, living and extinct, are known to enroll, evidently in response to disturbance. There is anatomical evidence that Euproops was capable of enrollment, such as the fit in shape between the prosoma and the rear body of the region, or opisthoma. Moreover, specimens are commonly preserved in enrolled position. 
If an individual enrolled upon encountering a predator, it would settle toward the substrate and potentially escape predation. The predators of Euproops included fishes and amphibians with basic sensory systems similar to those of living forms. Observations of many modern fishes demonstrate that they are highly sensitive to horizontal motion in their prey. A smooth path of settling would therefore make the horseshoe crab less conspicuous to a predator than would an oscillatory or irregular path in which horizontal movements interrupt the general vertical descent. Given this background, Fisher explored the role of spines in settling. He constructed models of horseshoe crabs, allowed the models to fall freely in seawater, and filmed their settling behavior. Figure 5.10b shows two sets of models, one of juveniles, A, and one of adults, B. For each set, one model has spines with realistic lengths, while the other models have spines that have been made shorter or longer compared with real forms, or have had their relative lengths changed. The models are reconstructed in an enrolled posture, with the opisthoma tucked under the prosoma and the telson, tailspine, extending beyond the head. Representatives' results of settling experience, experiments are shown in figure 5.11. Some of the models oscillate as they descend, A6. Others make abrupt horizontal shifts, A2, and some attain a smooth and stable ascent, A4. Oh, sorry, descent. Uh, this last type of settling is expected to be least conspicuous to a predator, and therefore to be most advantageous for a predator avoidance. The models that settle in this way are in fact the ones corresponding to the observed forms. For juveniles, relatively long lateral spines and short medial spines, both of which are short relative to the prosoma, are required to yield a smooth descent. For adult models to settle smoothly, Fisher found that the spines must be about the same length as the prosoma, and the medial spines must be longer than the lateral spines. This again is what is seen in actual specimens. These results strongly suggest that the right balance of spine sizes is an adaptation for smooth settling. Because there are nonlinear relationships between spine size and body size on the one hand, and drag and hydro other hydrodynamic forces on the other hand, the same spine sizes are not equally effective at all body sizes. There has evidently been natural selection for a particular pattern of anisometric growth in order to accommodate this fact. Although the spines of Euproops clearly have functional value, the settling behavior of this horseshoe crab is not perfectly ideal. Rapid, smooth settling would be better attained by a spherical object. Yet the organism had functional demands other than settling. For example, its overall form was elongate rather than spherical in order to facilitate swimming, and the spines projected posteriorly to facilitate movement through the sediment. Euproops could settle remarkably smoothly, as it is, it is as optimal as it can be reasonably expected to be, given the constraints of sorry, competing functions and phylogenetic inheritance. Figure 5.1. The additional example in box 5.1 combines biomechanics with statistical analysis of anatomic measurements. Figure 5.11. Examples of settling behavior in juvenile Euproops models drawn from time-lapse photographs. Models were released in water with tailspine pointing up. They initially moved from this orientation, then achieved a sustained pattern of descent. A4 shows a steady descent of realistic form. A2 and A6 show examples of unsteady descent in forms that have had spines changed from their true lengths. Box 5.1, Locomotion in Non-Avian Dinosaurs. In any long-lived and diverse biologic group, it is unlikely that any aspect of function will be completely uniform throughout the group. 
Nevertheless, it may be possible to characterize the general functional style of a higher taxon and to contrast it with that of other taxa. The case of dinosaurs is especially interesting because there is a living group that is phylogenetically closer to them, the birds, which are generally recognized to be an offshoot of theropod dinosaurs. Despite their evolutionary descent from dinosaurs, living birds are highly derived in terms of physiology, behavior, feeding, and skeletal anatomy. Basal phylogenetic relationships within archosaurs, for figure 4.10, might also seem to suggest crocodilians as a possible living analog to some dinosaurs. At the same time, the wide range of ways of life apparently exploited by dinosaurs as a group, many of them similar to those of living mammals, suggest the possibility of mammals as living analogs. The following study focuses on a particular aspect of function, namely the posture adopted in walking, to determine which living group is most likely to represent the best analog. Many aspects of skeletal morphology in dinosaurs suggest an upright posture, so the sprawling gait of crocodiles and other primitive archosaurs would seem to be ruled out. Yet within this upright posture, there are two principal styles of locomotion, broadly characteristic of birds and mammals respectively, figures 5.12 and 5.13. The orientation of the femur changes throughout the step cycle in both groups, generally being relatively more vertical at the point of foot liftoff and more horizontal at the point of foot contact. The forces on the femur also vary regularly within the step cycle, being dominated by torsion and compression when the femur is horizontal and bending and compression when it is vertical figure 5.12d and 5.12e. Regardless of the point in the step cycle, however, birds tend to have the femur at a position much closer to horizontal than do mammals. The relatively horizontal posture of the femur has important consequences for avian skeletal uh, structure. Consider the total length of the hind limb and the proportion of this length made up by the femur, the tibia, and the metatarsal, figures 5.14 and 5.15. The femur of a bird typically accounts for 20 to 40% of the total limb length. Bone is weaker in the face of uh, torsional as opposed to bending forces. This, coupled with the horizontal attitude of the bird femur, implies that the torsional forces on this bone would be excessive if it were much longer than 40% of the limb length. With a more vertical femur, mammals experience a lower torsional force and can therefore achieve longer femoral lengths, up to 60% or more of the total limb length. Um, thus, we have a form-function correlation that can be understood in terms of biomechanics. Can we use this to deduce the style of dinosaur locomotion? What is, uh, the argument for doing so is statistical in nature. When dinosaur limbs are measured, they largely overlap the mammalian field in the femur tibia metatarsal ternary diagram, figure 5.15, while they show only slight overlap with the avian field. Note that the oldest known bird, Archaeopteryx, falls within this small region of overlap. Bipedal and quadrupedal dinosaurs occupy nearly separate fields, but both are mainly coincident with the mammalian field. Figure 5.12. Posture and biomechanics of a representative of terrestrial vertebrate, a chicken. A. The pelvis and hind limbs. The lower arrows indicate the direction of force between the ground and the center of mass. M. The upper arrows indicate the forces through the femur that result in the offset between the femur and the center of mass. B and C, two parts of the stride in which the femur is B, relatively more horizontal, and C, more vertical. D and E, the forces on the femur indicated diagrammatically. 
when the femur is more horizontal, D, there are compressive forces, straight arrows, and twisting forces, curved arrows. When the femur is more vertical, there are compressive forces, straight arrows, and bending forces, curved arrows. Figure 5.13. Posture of the femur during stride of birds, open circles, and mammals, closed circles. The angle of the femur relative to the horizontal varies predictably during this stride, and this, this angle is consistently lower, more horizontal, for birds. Points show the mean of plus or minus one standard error, see box 3.1, based on four bird species and eight mammal species. Figure 5.14. Sketch of a hind limb showing the femur, tibia, and metatarsal that were measured for comparison among birds, mammals, and dinosaurs. Overall, the structure of dinosaur limbs suggests a style of locomotion more similar to that of living mammals than that of living birds. This result, of course, does not mean that other aspects of dinosaur function and physiology are more mammalian than avian, but it is important in providing an analog for future studies on dinosaur locomotion. Figure 5.15 Hind limb measurements for birds, B, mammals, M, and non-avian dinosaurs, D. A. The percentage, uh, the percent of total hind limb length accounted for by the femur, tibia, and metatarsal is graphed in the ternary diagram. Lines circumscribe the entire field of values for each group. B. Details of the fields occupied by three groups. Bipedal dinosaurs, BD, overlap somewhat with birds, but both bipedal and quadrupedal dinosaurs overlap mainly with mammals. C. The positions of some groups of mammals. Note that bipedal mammals, indicated by large dots, largely overlap with the field of bipedal dinosaurs. D. The positions of some groups of dinosaurs. Note that three specimens of the oldest known bird, Archaeopteryx, are within the field of bipedal dinosaurs. Other lines of evidence in functional interpretation. Numerous other lines of supplementary evidence are often invoked in functional studies. As discussed in Chapter 1, trace fossils may reveal patterns of behavior that give clues to function and aspects of life habit. Studies of growth are also important in functional analysis. In the example of respiration in rhombiferin echinoderms that we discussed in Chapter 2, Box 2.3, the details of allometric scaling were used to infer that some factor must have limited the efficiency of respiratory structures. In the example that follows, additional geologic and paleogeographic da data are used to help infer the functional ecology of certain specialized trilobites. Life habits in pelagic trilobites. The range of individual lens orientations in the trilobite eye can be used to infer the size and shape of the visual field of the trilobite. In most trilobites, the field of view is lateral over the surface of the sediment. A number of trilobite lineages independently evolved large eyes that in most extreme cases gave them 360-degree vision in all directions, including downward, figure 5.16. The specialized eyes of the forms in figure 5.16 are accompanied by other unusual features that are not generally found in trilobites, the majority of which were benthic, bottom-dwelling, and had the ability to walk and swim to a limited extent. The plural, lateral regions of the thorax in these specialized forms are greatly reduced, which would have contributed to the flexibility and reduced the bulk of the trilobite. This would seem to serve as an adaptation for swimming. The reduction in plural regions may have also facilitated backwards vision. The head is large and has genial spines, genial spines that project downward. 
This is different from the majority of trilobites whose spines project horizontally, and it would not have been conducive to, benthic, to a benthic existence. Moreover, the axial region is highly vaulted, suggesting well-developed musculature like that of a shrimp would have been used, useful for active swimming. This combination of features suggests that these trilobites were pelagic, open ocean, rather than benthic. The well-developed eyes are similar to those in a number of specialized living species of amphipod and isopod crustaceans. These groups are mostly benthic, but specialized forms that live in the open ocean have evolved large eyes like those of trilobites in question. By analogy, this suggests that these trilobites were also pelagic. As stated earlier, arguments from analogy can be rather inexact, but in this example there are two additional lines of evidence that support the inferences drawn from functional arguments and analogy. First, individual taxa of these trilobites have very broad geographic ranges, but are mostly restricted to near the paleoequator, figure 5.17. This suggests that ocean conditions rather than dispersal ability and the arrangement of continents, see section 9.6, limited their distribution. Second, the trilobites are found in a wide range of sediment types, ranging from the kind of shallow water deposits in which benthic trilobites are usually found to deeper water sediments. It seems implausible that a species would occupy such a wide range of benthic environments without showing any anatomical modifications to suit the different habitats. In fact, other lineages of trilobites that live on the sediment surface in very deep waters, where very little light penetrates, often have reduced or absent eyes. The natural interpretation of this combination of geographic and geologic occurrence is that these trilobites, like the amphipods and isopods mentioned earlier, lived in the open ocean and that their molts and carcasses settled down to this ocean floor to occupy a range of sedimentary environments. Further refinement of this interpretation is possible. Different genera of pelagic trilobites are found in a somewhat different, uh, different range of sediment types. Molts and carcasses settled on the ocean floor, and the shallower the pelagic habitat of the taxon, the broader range of depths to which it could settle. Figure 5.18. Genera such as Carolinides, uh, figures 1.16c and sorry 5.16c and 5.16h, and Opiputerella, Opiputerella figures 5.16b and 5.16g, which are found in the full range of environments from shallowest to deepest, must have inhabited the surface waters. Others, such as Prescyclopagy, Prescyclopagy, huh, figure 5.16a, and, oh god, why, um, Girvanopagy, figure 5.16e, which are absent from the shallowest sediments, must have lived within deeper parts of the ocean. Figure 5.16, examples of trilobites with well-developed eyes, reduced pleural regions, and ventrally projecting heads. Not going to read through all of those names again. Figure 5.17, paleogeographic reconstruction showing the arrangement of continents in the early Ordovician. Circles, are show, uh, circles show the occurrences of the genus Carolinides. Figures 5.16c and 5.16h and triangles show the occurrences of Opiputerella figures 5.16b and 5.16g. Both are geographically widespread, but mostly near the paleoequator, suggesting that they were limited by ocean conditions rather than dispersal ability.